0: This is where we live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about debt. Does it make you nauseous when you think about how long it could take to pay off your student loan debt? Are you a parent who's taken on thousands of dollars in loans so your kids don't have to? You're not alone. Seven out of 10 Americans consistently worry about their finances. And if you're a young professional, it's often student loan and credit card debt that weighs you down at a time when you're finally independent and the bills keep coming. We want to hear your stories. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash wherewelive. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. I thought about this show topic after reading a post on Facebook by a very funny and accomplished woman who lives in Hartford. Julia Pistel is a writer, founder of CT Improv, and she's the co-host of the Radius Project from WMPR. Julia, you wrote a great post on Facebook about how you paid off more than $30,000 in about two years?
2: Yes. So um, the first thing I want to say, and I'll probably repeat it often, is, you know, everybody's story is different. And I don't want to seem like I am some kind of martyr or deserve any kind of award for finally having a net worth of zero. Uh, it is debt is really challenging subject. Everybody's in a different situation. Um, but my situation is that I had a a couple of graduate school loans that were really high and Um, I had been paying them dutifully, uh, but they weren't going down very quickly. And I had just um, gotten married. And so my wedding had 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 a high cost to it. And I was basically just in the habit of keeping a couple thousand dollars on my credit cards, just rolling around, um, which is all very bad. So what happened was after I got married, I was like, "I, I cannot bring debt into this marriage. So let's do this. Um, And I just started looking for ways to change that that ultimate number, which was my net worth, Um, which sounds like such a rich person statement. But for me, the first step was really like reducing it to one number um, and saying, all right, what is the total number of money coming in? What is the total number of money going out? And how can I just make that graph move in the right direction? So. Um, I started taking on a lot of extra work. I started cutting down expenses, um, which we can go into detail about. And honestly, once I started really committing to throwing every single dollar I had at first the credit cards, of course, and then the student loans, it went much faster than I imagined. And it was very exciting. Um, My last payment on my student loans was like $7,000 in one fell swoop. And I was super, super excited to just kill it right then and there. So tell us about the strategy because, you know,
0: everyone's debt number is different. And so some people might think it's really overwhelming if they have over $100,000 in debt. And we'll get to that with some financial experts later in the hour. But so you identified that you had $34,000 in total debt you wanted to pay down. Did you go to blogs? Did you read books? Did you talk to mom and dad? I mean, did you talk to you know your neighbor? I mean, how
2: did you figure out, okay, how, <laughs> what's going to work for me to get this number to zero? Well, it's such a good question, because I think that I did not talk to any human beings um, because it is so anxiety-inducing. But this is a great era in that um, there's so many interesting, cool personal finance blogs and tools out there for people that are free. Um, Instead of feeling like you have to hire a financial advisor, which feels insane, um, you can just read other people's stories. And that was really exciting. So I think a lot of listeners who have maybe started down this path will know some of the people that I'm about to recommend. But um, the big one, I think, for people in my generation, I'm 32 years old, um, is Mr. Money Mustache, which is like a funny finance kind of lifestyle blog about uh, earning money and early retirement. So that's number one. Uh, Number two is there was this guy uh, who paid off $100,000 in his Harvard Law School loans in 10 months. Um, that's called No More Harvard Debt. That's a really good blog. And basically I became a junkie um, of – if you go onto your computer and you Google um, I paid off my debt, you will find so many families, so many single moms, um, so many older people. You will find people from every walk of life who have stories and strategies um, to share. And I think some of the big, the big ones that I really took away is um, – It's really – you want to find some big wins and big changes that you can make. Um, So like I've never had a car. So for me, that's a huge expense that's just not in my life. Um, And then I took on a lot of extra freelance work and really learned to negotiate for higher pay, which I know we're going to talk about later. Um, And that really made a huge difference, too. So I just found as many different um, changes that I could make and really the bigger, the better. I think when people really start to give up is when they feel like um, they have to save a dollar here and a dollar there. And that can feel really overwhelming. But I will I want to say one more thing, which is that. People feel really overwhelmed by $30,000 or $100,000, but these same people want to buy a house later in their life or have a kid later in their life, and those are the big numbers that you'll be thinking in in that at that point. So it really it's good to start thinking of it as something possible and an amount that you can earn or pay down um, relatively quickly. So one of the things
0: in your uh, Facebook post that you mentioned is you called up your credit card company. You said... Can I get
2: a lower interest rate? How did that go? Great. I mean, I can't I read this advice in a book that has a horrible title but is a great book, um, <laughs> which is I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Um, he's another really popular internet writer. Um, and he basically just takes takes you through it's essentially like a workbook of little things that that eventually end up making a big difference. So one thing that most people do not know is that you can call your credit card company and say You know, just like I'm saying now, hey, look, uh, I've been a customer of yours for seven or eight years and uh, I have a high interest rate. Can you lower it? And they said yes. And you can do that, you know, as often, you can attempt as often as you want. And so I did that a few times and got my rate lowered often. Yep. And
0: so you also talked about, you know, negotiation became an important part of this whole strategy to keep the money coming in while you're paying down this debt. You also came up with some creative ways to make a little revenue on the side related to not having a car.
2: Yes. So <laughs> I um so I have a, a interesting, fun life. Um, I have lots of different side jobs um, and I um I own a small business. I own CT Improv, a comedy company in Hartford. And I got really lucky just on a personal level in that CT taught me a lot of the skills that I ended up using for myself. So with CT, we uh, negotiate a lot of things. We negotiate every time we're hired, you know, we're basically freelance artists. So I learned to take those skills into my freelance writing work and learned how to really ask for fair pay. Uh, fight for fair pay uh, get paid on time which is a huge thing for a lot of people and network to to pick up more and more side jobs so for me i would rather work more than live like a monk uh so i really really dug in on getting more work and getting paid more which uh, is also for me a feminist issue of you know being bold enough to ask for what I'm worth. So it it was really fun and empowering actually to learn how to negotiate and then to feel like I was putting that money to immediate use, paying off my student loan. I want to go to the
0: phone now uh, with Chris Costello. He's a certified financial planner and also the co-founder and CEO of Bloom, an online registered investment advisor. Chris, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So you've heard a little of Julia's story, I hope. Um, Can you react to it? Is she an anomaly that she was able to pay down this debt in, I think, 21 months? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm super proud of her, uh, and I can relate um, very much to her. I, uh, I myself, when I graduated from college, it's been a few more years uh, since uh, Julia, but... uh, when I graduated from college in the mid-1990s, I had $30,000 of student loan debt, and I know exactly how she felt. Uh, back then, there weren't as many resources out there, um, and so I, I'm, I think I might have felt a little more trapped maybe than she did. Um, but there was certainly not a day that went by. Um, you know, I think it probably took me, if I think back, probably seven or eight years maybe to pay that off. And there was not a day that went by in those seven or eight years where I did not think about, and it wasn't fondly, think about my debt. So
2: um,
1: I, I know, I know where, I know how she felt.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to say, you know, it is really overwhelming. And I, had I started to deal with this right when I graduated from undergrad, twenty-two or twenty-three, that would have been, I mean, just I, I think when when it gets real for people is when the number becomes real so when it was even higher than that and i was younger it was like oh this is an impossible number that will somehow solve itself and then you just go into that fantasy denial land but once it was an amount of money that was about what i was earning per year and i was working at a nonprofit, and not making very much that's when the pressure hit like i gotta get rid (laughs) of this number
3: I was
1: going to say, Julie, you talk about, you know, making that number real. And, and you know, there are likely right now parents um, listening right now that have high school seniors. And, and there's people all across this country right now that are making decisions about where to go to school. And one of the things that I try to try to say anytime I get a chance is that you need to think long and hard as a student, as a parent, uh, before sending your child off to college if you're not able to pay for it, into an institution where that student is going to walk out of there with six figures of student loan debt. Because I'm telling you, real life is you will never get out from under that. The the, the odds are that will change your financial trajectory. And and the problem is you're a high school senior, and I I wasn't thinking about – what the payoff schedule was going to look like when I started taking these student loans on. I mean, you have no idea at 18 or 19 years old that those decisions could likely be with you for the next 20 and 30 years and affect all sorts of things. It affects what kind of jobs you take. Fewer people these days are going to be teachers and working for non-for-profits and being social workers because they've got this debt, so they're forced into higher-income jobs. It delays when you can buy a house. Sometimes it delays when you have a family. It delays when you can retire. And these decisions start, unfortunately, at age 18. So the wake-up call that I give is to parents and understand they should be the ones that understand what type of, What this debt can do to their kids, you know, over decades.
0: Chris, we're getting a lot of calls from listeners. Um, I want to go to Ryan from Plantsville. Thanks so much, Ryan, for calling where we live. Tell us about your story.
4: So it's actually really interesting that uh, you've been making this point because uh, I went to a private college, and I went through law school, and I graduated with over $300,000 worth of student loan debt. Yeah.
3: Wow.
4: And, you know when you're 18 years old and you're looking at colleges and where you want to go, you're thinking about, you know, the best school that you can get yourself into and you're not necessarily thinking about what your financial future is going to look like. And so, I mean, I've seen it myself in terms of the jobs that I've taken and the amount of work that I've done. And, you know, I'm now expecting um, my second child here uh, at the, end of the summer and it's just it's a daunting number that continually weighs on you um, and it kind of takes your breath away when you think I have a mortgage that's not attached to anything
5: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So Chris, what can you tell Ryan about how to tackle that that looming that looming debt?
1: There's multiple factors that come into play here. Number one, you have to just – it's like its like weight loss. It's like you have to, like, someday realize um, that, okay, I'm done. I, I'm going to change my lifestyle. Um, and, and it's not really something that, that you can be coached into. It's, it's really a personal decision. You have to say, okay, I'm ready. I hate this debt. And that's, that's kind of – I'm speaking from personal experience a little bit. From when I, you know, how I felt, but you have to make the decision that I hate this. I hate the way it make it makes me feel. I hate how it changes my life. I hate how it affects the decisions that I make. And so once you once you kind of I think consciously make that decision, then you're you're like, okay, what can we do here? Now it's now it's about radical cost reduction. It is like it is about living in a manner that you probably never envisioned yourself living in. And I'm talking cut. And Julie can Julia can speak to this. Cutting back costs in every facet of your life because your sole purpose is to throw as much money each month towards paying down that that debt as possible. Now, now Julia um, yes. talked about paying off of paying off her credit cards versus her student loans, and and obviously it worked for her. I like the strategy of the the debt snowball method, mm-hmm. where you take all of your debts, you line them up, and you pay off the debt with the smallest balance first working your way towards the larger balances and some people will say wait a second you gotta look what the interest rates are on those debts don't you wanna pay off the debt with the highest interest rate and I say only if you're planning on being married to these debts for the rest of your life would you even care about the interest rate if your mindset if your mindset is that you want to get rid of these things as fast as humanly possible paying off the smallest balance working your way up to the largest balance what that does is that gives you some psychological momentum. and Don't overlook that. Don't diminish the power of getting a little momentum and feeling proud of yourself of checking one of those stupid debts off the list forever. And a lot of times people get trapped in paying a, a, a larger interest rate, but it might be your biggest balance and you feel like you're never making any headway. So I like paying off your smallest doubt, uh, balances first, working your way up towards the larger
3: ones.
2: That is exactly what I did. Um, I. I really agree with every single thing that you just said. Uh, you know you have to understand that it's a psychological thing and if you are going to make big change, it has to be actual change in the habits and the lifestyle. I mean, I didn't buy clothes. I didn't buy new clothes for maybe four or five years um, and then obviously, this is a hugely personal thing, but You know, I'm 32. Didn't even consider starting a family until I could get rid of this. Um, So those kind of big changes or getting a roommate is one I think a lot of people don't consider. If you live in a house or have some ability to have a roommate, um, that's just hundreds of extra dollars that you could be putting into your pocket. Um, even though you know we we don't like it we're uncomfortable with it those are the kind of big changes that I was really looking for
0: this is where we live I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel today we're talking about debt we've got a number of callers on the line we're gonna ask you to stay with us we're gonna have Chris come back after the break to take more of your comments and questions this is where we live This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanschel. Today, we're talking about debt and how young Americans can begin to tackle paying off those student loans and credit card debt. In studio is Hartford resident and writer Julia Postel, who shared on Facebook how she paid off more than $30,000 in debt. On the phone with us is Chris Costello. He's a certified financial planner and also the co-founder and CEO of Bloom, an online registered investment advisor. First, I want to take a call from Omar from Stratford, who works at a financial aid office. Omar, tell us your story.
5: Basically, I have student loan debt currently as well. Well, I'm in a position where I'm able to counsel students on how much to borrow and trying to borrow wisely, working at a community college. Uh, Most of our students are able to pay for school with uh, grant money, institutional funds or federal funds. Uh, But there are those students that come in who want that extra uh, money, which comes in the form of loans. To pay for uh living expenses, the rent uh laptop all that good stuff, so my job is to try to you know dissuade them as much as I can to not take out that loan because i'm I'm living with it day every day that I have to pay these loans off um a matter of fact, it's still delaying me going starting my master's degree because of the current loan debt that I have so and mortgage debt that I have.
0: Thank you, Omar, for your comment. Chris, if I, I want to go to you, talk a little bit about the importance of that, that counseling to not only the college student but to the parent. We actually got a private uh, Facebook message from a parent earlier this week who said he called the FAFSA form a scam because it's too easy to qualify loans that will then be harder to pay off later. So can you talk about that, that predicament?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, um, very simply, I, I wish there were more people like Omar um, out there, um, more because more, more incoming students and 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 incoming parents of students need need to be speaking with somebody like that um, who can who who can warn them um, about how this is going to literally change the their their child's financial tree, likely um, depending on the amount of debt that they take on. Um, you know, beyond that, the, the and I kind of started to allude to this uh, earlier. Uh, and, and trust me, I'm not uh, I'm not here. Uh, I'm not a paid advocate for uh, state schools. But um, you know, for a lot of people, the reality is, if you cannot afford the tuition, then you need to think long and hard about finding an institution where you it's it, where you can afford it. And oftentimes, that is going to an in-state school. And I'm sure there are parents right now that are just. Squirming in their seats to think of their, you know, their their children having to go to a state school when it's been their dream to send them to, you know, a prestigious Ivy League or private school. And I and I and I'd have to be kind of blunt and say, wake up, um, because you're 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 going to send your kid uh, down a path where if you can't pay for it, um, we, we we're hearing about this. I mean, all the 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 decisions that, it, that that will change um, for you, or, or make for you, I should say, uh, once you get out of school. And um, I think the more that we can draw awareness to this, because again, I don't think you can ask much, many 18-year-olds to understand what a repayment schedule looks like. So it's really kind of the, up to the parents' responsibility to step in and 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 teach their kids that, hey, this may not be the, the, the best decision for you.
0: You know, the other side of that uh Uh, Chris is that you know a lot of times states these days are contributing less towards higher education towards the uh, state schools I mean here in Connecticut UConn the tuition keeps going up I mean it's you know in the past it was you could go to a state school and it was affordable but that's becoming farther and farther out of reach for some students
1: right and and, and, you know some some of that is unfortunately there there was a time many years ago where you could work uh, a summer job, maybe a part-time job during the school year and that was enough money to, to pay for four years easily. Uh, obviously those days are long since gone and, and to your point even even in state schools it's no longer uh, a possibility. Um, but it still should be uh, a factor that's included. Um, again, if you're if you're not coming from a household that can pay for your college expenses then you know, you're going to need you're going to need to get a job while you're going to class. You're going to need to work hard during the summer. Um, so it's it's a combination, I think, of just awareness of what this can do, and also a little bit of tough love, if you will, and more of maybe just kind of a wake up call that if if you're if you're if you're desiring to go to college, then you're going to have to put some skin in the game too.
2: Lucy, if I could just jump in here, there's another similar wake up call that I feel like people who are coming out of um, of grad school or undergrad it can make a similar decision which is where to live i mean people do not talk about this enough you know everyone wants to move to new york la boston those are very expensive places to live and when i'm talking about paying off my debt and i live here in hartford which is relatively much more affordable than those other cities You know, that is when you talk about a big decision that can change your ability to pay off your debt, that's the biggest decision you can make. When I came out of undergrad, (laughs) I moved to China for a year and it cost me, you know, $100 a month to live. Um, So that's a big decision similar to where to go to college that can get you on a really good or really bad path right away.
0: And your parents were happy you moved to China. <laughs>
2: oh my God, they loved it.
0: <laughs> All right, I want to go. I want to go now to Josh from Hartford. Josh, thanks for calling. Where we live.
2: Thanks for
5: having my call. Uh, I wanted to kind of second what uh, both guests are saying in a in a larger sense that I think to grow up middle class in this country, or even not middle class, but sort of exposed to the prevailing culture, is to assume that certain things are available to you, like that you will get to go to the best college you can get into and that you will get to buy a house in the city or town or wherever it is that you want to go to. And that was certainly my sense. I mean, I I actually grew up fairly poor, so college was easy because it was paid for by financial aid. But then as a young man, like I had a job and I went to law school and I got married and I bought a house when there was lots of house credit and it did not work out well for me in the sense that I just totally overextended myself financially because I thought, well, this is what you do. You get a house and you have children and you go to law school. And now, you know, I'm 38 and I'm slowly starting to pay off my debts. But I think we have to accept that we don't get to live in New York and we don't get to go to the best school and we don't get to buy a house that we should just live within our means and accept that it's a different life.
0: Thank you, Josh, for your call. That can be a hard pill to
2: swallow for that, you know, idealistic child that wants to make it big. Well, I think that I, I really, really agree. And I think what can feel so overwhelming with that is we feel like it's all or nothing, but it isn't all or nothing. Um, I mean, once you've gotten yourself stable, you know, you basically make choices, you know, and you say, well, do I want a nice house or do I want uh, a car that uh, like a some car. That I don't care about cars at all. So <laughs> this is a hard example for me. But you have to choose what you care about. Um, and if you want a family, uh, maybe you live in a small apartment. Um, maybe you really, really want that super middle class consumerist dream. And so you don't have kids or you have less kids. Um, and you can you have to choose what's important to you to live within your means. This is where we live. We're talking
0: about debt in this country, especially among young professionals. You know, we're focusing a lot on student loan debt. One of the reasons is when we look at the most recent numbers, student loan debt accounts for $1.23 trillion in this country. It's a big problem. But there's also other debt that young people accrue, including credit card debt. So, Chris, I wanted to take this call from Carlos from Meriden. Carlos, thanks for calling where we
4: live. Uh, Thank you very much for taking my call. I have a question um on I never went to school or nothing like that, but I did accumulate some debt when I was younger. How do you find
5: out how much you owe? Like, do you go to a website? Do you call somebody? You know, how much you owe in general? Um, I'll take the answer offline. Thank
4: you very much.
0: All right. Thank you, Carlos. Any uh, suggestions for him, Chris?
4: Um,
1: well, I, I, I would assume that he's getting some form of statement um, from the lenders. Um, I don't know that there's any one number that I'm aware of that he could call. Um, certainly, he could uh, request a free credit report, um, and uh, there's virtual certainty that, that that each of those debt balances will be included there, so that might be a place to start. Uh, online, there's a number of places you can request free credit reports, Um and and actually get updated ones I think periodically even these days, um, and so he could start there. But but I would hope that he's getting some something in the mail sent to him. Um, uh, certainly they've got a vested interest in collecting that money, so he's probably getting some communication asking for that money.
0: And what are your tips on helping um, people pay down that credit card debt? You know, so often we hear don't pay just the minimum because you're paying just the interest. And so what are some tips for people dealing with you know looming credit card debt?
1: The advice is, is literally identical in every single facet as paying off student Debt is debt. Mm-hmm. Um, other, other than a mortgage debt, every other debt is terrible. You know, car debt, student loan, credit card debt, that, that's the crippling debt that we're all talking about. That's you can substitute credit card or student loan, it's all the same. And the strategies are exactly the same. We talked about this earlier. Getting in, and, and Carlos, you know, needs to find out, you know, lay out all of his balances in front of him. Uh, you know, again, smallest to largest, um, and then the critical thing is make a commitment to pay these things off. You're not going to be able to wish them away. You're going to have to say, I'm going to radically change my lifestyle. I'm going to stop eating out. I'm going to stop buying the new iPhone when it comes out. All these other things that 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 we as American consumers are tempted by all the time, and throw every available dollar towards paying um, that balance off. So the point that I'd like to make about debt in general, and and I try and counsel young people about this as much as I can anytime I get an audience, and that is the, the 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 debt that you take on. Every bit of debt that you take on serves to limit your choices. It it makes you less free. It makes you less nimble. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you owe a lot of money, whether it be a student loan or car debt or eventually mortgage debt that changes how you make decisions in your life. You're, you're more likely to stay in a job that you cannot stand because, you've got, because you're burdened with debt. You're much less likely as a, as a young person maybe to travel to China or to see parts of the world that you might not get to see if you're already burdened with debt. And so if young people can stay nimble, and by staying nimble – it's basically avoid debt at all costs because you want to maintain the ability to make the decisions. If you're in a job that you can't stand, wouldn't it be great to be able to quit and know that you've got maybe a couple months of savings in the bank that you could live off until you find a job that you love? So many Americans today, and I say this because this was my dad, um, stayed in a job for his entire life that he really didn't like, but he had debts and he had a family and things of that nature. And so young people that aren't there yet, they've got an opportunity to change that course for themselves. Um, And uh, I I hope that they're able to to resist temptation with debt, resist temptation to buy the latest and greatest, resist temptation to get a brand-new car as a congratulations to themselves for graduating from college.
0: I want to take this tweet from Carolina who says she's a young professional, over $100,000 in student loans, $18,000 annually for child care costs. We know that's a big cost for families. She wants to know, is there hope for people with high debt and young children who want to buy a house?
1: Um, I would be strongly uh, encouraging her not to think about buying a house. Um, I I would be saying she should be focusing on getting rid of that debt, staying as lean as possible because, um, because buying a house is, a lot of times people think that buying a house is just coming up with money for the down payment and the mortgage payment. But anybody that owns a house knows there's tons, thousands and thousands of other hidden expenses. You got to put curtains in the house and then the roof gets bad and then the air conditioning goes out and then you want to put some landscaping in and that adds up to thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of added costs. And so I think that people are, that are still working to pay off those debts. Don't stack another debt on top of that. Try to get rid of that gigantic ball and chain that you're dragging around before you go uh, and take on the responsibility and financial obligations of a home.
0: You know, before I let you go, Chris, we're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes. Um, What are some places where people can go to learn about um, programs out there that help them consolidate their loans or pay down um, their debt—maybe um, programs we heard from listeners who joined the Peace Corps, people who joined the military because they're able to then go to college and not have to deal with that tuition. I mean, what are some? Where's a, a common sense place for them to go?
1: Yeah, I, I'd actually defer this back to Julia. I think she had some good suggestions earlier. She's she's living proof of where of where to where to look.
2: Julia. As I said at the beginning, everyone's different, and there's so many good resources for free online. So I would just Google as close to your own personal story as you can, and you will find something that works for you. Find someone like you who is doing what you want to do. For me, I'm not a parent, so that radically changes my situation. Um, So if you are a parent, I would go go, that's where I would go. There's so many, I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of moms and dads trying to do exactly what everyone else is trying to do.
0: I want to take time to thank Chris Costello, certified financial planner and co-founder and CEO of Bloom, an online registered investment advisor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So you have debt, but what are some skills to help your financial future? We're talking negotiation next. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about debt. In studio with me is Julia Pastel. She's a 30-something Hartford resident who shared on Facebook how she paid more than $30,000 of debt in about two years. One thing that worked for her as someone who takes on many freelance gigs is learning how to be a better negotiator. That got us wondering how many of us actually negotiate, whether at work or at home, and why is it perceived as a skill men possess and women avoid? Author Sara Loshever joins us by phone for some perspective. She and co-author Linda Babcock wrote the book, Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. Sara, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. So tell us, what led you and Linda Babcock to write this book?
3: Well, initially it was Linda's insight. She saw that her male graduate students would come and ask for things that could help them get ahead get some opportunities that would be good for their careers down the line and then the women would hear about it and come and complain because when they'd given these men an advantage she hadn't given them and she's like well they asked you didn't ask (laughs) so she started noticing this in a lot of different realms that men would ask it would help them get ahead help them you know do whatever they wanted to do and women wouldn't ask. So I met her when she was in... I live outside Boston. She was a visiting professor at the Harvard Business School, and I met her. I'd always been interested in the obstacles women run into in their careers. So we decided to write this book together, and I interviewed hundreds of people. She did a lot of research uh, back at Carnegie Mellon, where she's located
0: permanently. So I read parts of the book. It was published in 2003. It's 2016. Has anything changed? Are women becoming better negotiators?
3: Well, I think more and more women, particularly in the business world and in academia, understand that they need to do this. The idea has kind of gotten out there that this is something women don't do as much and should do more. And I think women, some women are taking executive education courses. They're using our other book, Ask For It, to train themselves to do it better. But we still have a long way to go. I still meet women all the time who say, oh, I'm terrible at this. Or, oh, I wish I'd met you 25 years ago. So I would learned to do this at the beginning of my careers.
0: Uh, Julia Pastel is in studio with us. Um, she's a writer and a Hartford resident who found a way to pay down A lot of her debt, you know, much of it, student loan debt. Now she's a freelancer, and she told me that um, she can tell a little bit about her story. But she told me that she had to learn to become a better negotiator, and that really helped her, you know, get to the bottom line.
3: So yes, particularly when women are advocating for themselves. So in a job situation, or when they have their own businesses, or when they're freelancers. Like, Julia, it's really tough for them. Women are great negotiating on behalf of their clients or their customers or their students, their patients, their kids, but have a lot of trouble asking for things for themselves. And
2: people don't realize how big a difference it makes. I mean, when I think about the salaries that I accepted in my first couple of jobs when I was young, I it's really depressing to think about how asking for – five or ten thousand dollars more would have absolutely changed the trajectory of my life and it, it actually had took having to leave a job that i loved to get paid fairly and i was so ready to ask because i knew how off i i had been in the past and that thrill of I mean, I asked for, I was given some really good advice. It was like, think of a number that makes your toes curl and double it in terms of a freelance rate. Um, and this is specific to freelancing because um, people really undercut themselves there. Um, and I, I asked for that number and then really apologetically my clients came back and it was like so close to what I had asked. And it's so thrilling when, um, when you ask and you get that reward, but it. I totally agree that it's going to take a lot of practice and a lot of boldness and a lot of deliberate attempts for this entire cultural habit to be broken of women learning to ask for what they absolutely deserve.
3: Well, one thing Linda always says is ask for as much as you can ask for without giggling. <laughs> um, and and that, that's Not necessarily as hard as you might think if you do your research. When women don't know what other people are getting, particularly what men are getting, they don't know what the market in their neighborhood, their region, their profession is prepared to pay, women are very bad at estimating, at evaluating what they can get. But when women have done their research and they know what other people are asking for and getting, it's not that we don't think we're as good as other people as men we just don't really know how to price ourselves so do that research get on the web there are a lot of great resources a lot of general resources you know monster.com payscale.com salary.com to get information across the board but most professions most industries have professional associations as well where you can get information from their websites about what what pay levels are for people with your credentials, your training, your experience, your education in your region. You can always put in your zip
0: code. Sarah Lashever is co-author of two books about women and negotiation, Women Don't Ask and Ask Forward, how women can use the power of negotiation to get what they really want. So Sarah, for people listening, what are some tips to get a raise in the workplace?
3: Well, first of all, as I said, the most important thing is to do your research. The research actually determines more of what you'll get than anything that happens in the room. Once you figure out what you want to ask for, what the range is, aim for the top of the range. There's a direct correlation between what you aim for, what your target is, and what you get. If you aim lower, you're going to get less. There aren't that many employers who are going to say, no, no, go out, come back in, ask for more. They're going to think, oh, I'm getting great work at bargain basement prices. Sure. Um, But, you know, if you aim for the top of the range, again, without giggling, you've, uh, you know, accomplished a lot. And then if you feel really nervous about it, get together with a friend or a colleague you trust. Read them thoroughly about the negotiation and role-play it a few times. Get them to push your buttons, embarrass you, make you mad, insult you, make you feel like you're going to lose your composure and run out of the room. And then practice.
0: Oh. Oh, looks like we lost us, Sarah. We'll get her <laughs> right back on. But since we have Julia in studio, um,
2: so when it came to negotiating, like, did you read books like this to help you figure it out? or? No, I think the best thing to do with negotiating and this is where being a freelancer is is a huge advantage is practice you have to be unafraid to hear no or unafraid to hear pushback so for me it was just uh especially through my business ct improv you know you just keep testing the waters you keep trying and trying and if someone says yes too fast then you know it was probably pretty (laughs) much too low you undervalued yourself and then you just keep going and keep going. So any practice getting negotiation is great. I had told you over the phone before we um, before we recorded uh, here that one thing that was really nice for me is I had had a lot of travel experience in China and in West Africa and in those countries. uh Negotiation is a part of everyday life on a scale that the average American cannot c- comprehend. You negotiate every single thing you buy and you negotiate food, you negotiate clothes, you negotiate your rent. Um, everything is up for up for grabs. So having that knowledge and experience as a young person that every single thing you should be questioning why it is costing that um, was a big advantage for me and really helped me um, negotiate in the future. Sarah, are you back on the line? Uh, yeah, right, uh, right <laughs> I am.
3: I'm here.
2: Speaking of technology, how
0: has our dependence on the Internet changed the culture of negotiation in this country? Is it, does it make it easy?
3: Well, there are uh, two aspects of it. It makes it easier because we have uh, access to so much information about what fair pay is, what appropriate pay is. You know, even the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a lot of information about what people are getting paid and should ask for. So that's the positive. The negative is that people often post things carelessly on social media that they don't realize their potential employers can find, will search for, and that can damage them uh, in a negotiation if someone can point out that they know they're looking for another job, and that means they don't think they're as committed to their own uh, their own current job, or they behaved in ways that maybe don't reflect so well on the company, and they posted about it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You really need to be cautious how you uh, how you present yourself online if you are you know a serious professional, because your potential employers are going to look for it, uh, look for what they can find.
0: This hour we were focusing on uh, people about to graduate or young professionals and I I put out a call um, to some people I I knew that went to business school and some of their colleagues and how they handle negotiation in their careers and some of the responses were surprising. One wrote, I don't think anyone ever told me that negotiation was possible when I first got out of college. And she wished that she had gotten negotiation skills earlier in her career, which would have helped her negotiate in other areas. So we're focusing on the workplace, but there's negotiation at home. There's negotiation at the car dealership. I mean, there's this, this skill transcends a lot of different places in our lives.
3: Yeah, I think it uh, can make a difference in every domain. So let's talk about negotiating at home. A lot of women don't feel like that's really an appropriate place to negotiate. They think it might be bad for their relationship because they think negotiation is kind of an aggressive or challenging thing to do as opposed to a problem-solving thing to do. So I always say, you know, don't say, oh, you know, you're a deadbeat. You get off the couch, you lug, and help me out. You approach mm-hmm. it, again, as kind of a collaborative problem-solving thing. So say, okay, you know, we both decided to buy this condo or this, apart- this you know, house. We both decided to have these kids, and we both work a lot. So let's look at all the chores and tasks necessary to keep our lives running smoothly, and divvy them up a little bit more equitably. If not, women tend to have much less leisure time than their partners. If their partners are male, they tend to shoulder a lot more stress, and stress is bad for your health. And most women's partners don't want them to get run down, weaken their immune system, just, you know, be unhappy and struggle and I think would be receptive to that kind of negotiation.
0: You mentioned collaboration. In your book, um, there's a a section that talks about how women, when they look at negotiating, it's more of a collaborative approach, and men see it as more of a, a competition.
3: Yeah, and actually that's a wonderful point because the best negotiations, the most successful ones, in which both sides come away with more of what they want, happier, the relationship preserved or enhanced, are more collaborative negotiations. Decades of research have shown that women's preferred approach, know oh, let's get down to, it. tell me what your problems are, tell me what your needs are, this is what I, I'm struggling with, or these are my goals, that kind of approach actually produces better agreements. So rather than feeling, so, oh, I need to come on strong, I need to be really firm, aggressive, I need to demand what I want, and I need to beat the other person, that's actually not a good approach, the typically male approach this problem-solving, collaborative approach that women prefer is actually superior.
0: Speaking of men, um, uh, someone who's worked in the hospital administration uh, system as a CFO wrote, I managed direct reports for more than 10 years, fairly balanced between male and female. In all that time, the only ones who ever came and asked for a raise were the men. If I said no, they continued to ask undeterred. The ones asking weren't always the most deserving ones.
3: So we hear this all the time. I know someone who hired chorus singers for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. They go to Tanglewood in the summer, and she said, every male singer asked for more money, not a single female singer asked. I've heard it all over the country, and it's true. The men ask, they get. It's not like every boss is going to stop and think, oh, yeah, but she's more qualified, or maybe she wants this, too. You might think, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, go ahead, get out of my office. I need to get back to my to-do list. I need to get back to my performance targets. So when women don't ask, you really sacrifice. And as you said a moment ago, it adds up very quickly over time. Really small differences early in your, your career since so many raises are based, uh, are, you know, as a percentage of what you were earning before, the gap between what men and women earn opens very, very rapidly. And let me just say, it's not just about money. It's also about things like evaluations. When men don't feel as though their annual evaluations, the feedback they're getting is fair, they'll go in and ask or talk about it to negotiate it. Women accept it, feel like, you know, that's lousy, I'm not happy about it. But little differences in percentage points in evaluations can add up to, you know, differences in opportunities down the line.
2: Anecdotally, I, I so agree with this, and I uh, teach comedy classes and deal with a lot of women and, who are trying to be bolder. Um, and one thing I hear a lot of this kind of talk about is at the time for promotion when they're competing with their colleagues. Um, and so many of the women who I like who are so smart and so awesome, um, their attitude is, "Well, I did the work, and I I have been essentially very like obedient and meeting." criteria. Why don't I get the promotion? And there is not a sense that there's a final step. And that final step is demanding that proving that, of course, in a positive, collaborative way. But um, I think a lot of women hold this assumption that, you know, if they're doing well, that will be noticed. And we really have to get over this hump of, you know, it's okay to say notice me as the final step to getting a promotion.
0: I want to thank Sara Loshever for joining us. She's co-author of two books about women and negotiation, Women Don't Ask, and Ask Forward, how women can use the power of negotiation to get what they really want. Also, thanks to Julia Pastel, writer, founder of CT Improv, and co-host of The Radius Project on WNPR. And she's finally debt-free. Congratulations. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is kyone Wolf. Continue the conversation at wmprorg slash where we live. I'm Lucy Batanchel. Thanks for listening.